Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today on the show, we have got one of our favorite folks. It is uh, Tori Hope Peterson. She's the author of a brand new book called Fostered, One Woman's Powerful Story of Finding Faith and Family Through Foster Care. The book drops August 30th, 2022. Um, And what we are going to do, I'll tell you now, at the end of the episode, listen to the outro because I will give you instructions for how you can win a copy of this book for free. So we'll have some instructions for uh, how to get that. We're going to select five people at random uh, with some specific criteria we'll give you at the end of the episode. So yes, you do have to listen the whole way through. I'm not giving you that in the intro, sitting for free. Baby, you got to listen to the episode. So uh, at the end of the episode, um, listen for how you can get a copy of Tori's book uh, pre-ordered for you. It will drop in about two weeks. And so uh, also, you know, Amazon likes to get those books to you by release date. So you might even get a little bit early. Who knows? So, uh, Tori, I will just tell you, is just vibrant and full of life. And um, her her story of growing up um, in foster care and uh, just the the full circle. I don't now. I will not. I will not preview the story itself. Uh, you have got to listen to her share uh, her story today. Um, just a brilliant person, brilliant thinker, incredible leader, um, and somebody who has lived uh, four or five lifetimes worth of life already. Uh, and so uh, she's just got a lot to say, and, and you're going to love her. Um, one disclaimer I will give is that uh, Tori and I were having because of course we were uh, having internet issues some during the show, so you might hear a little bit uh, moments where there's some some muffled audio or jumpy audio, uh, just know we got it cleaned up um, to where you're probably barely going to notice that. But I wanted to let you know that's not just your phone or your computer. That's that's something that, uh, man, just the good old World Wide Web was messing with us that day. And so um, without, any further, uh, without any further messages or news, I will give to you now our interview with Tori Hope Peterson. <laughs> Well, all right. We're here today uh, with Tori Hope Peterson, and uh, she has a new book coming out very soon. In fact, at the time that this airs, I think it will either be out or right about to be out. Um, the book is called Fostered. You can get it uh, anywhere you buy books, basically. And um, it's, it's, I would say, um, based on what we've heard so far, um, must read material. But we wanted to talk with Tori today about a whole bunch of different topics. And so... Um, Tori, one, thank you for being here. And then two, why don't we kind of jump right in for folks who don't have a paradigm for, for who you are or your story or anything. Why don't you kind of give us a um, maybe maybe a general overview of who you are and then we can kind of start walking through your story. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, I love Empowered to Connect. I did an internship for my church I think it was like in 2017 and they used a lot of your guys' material. And so um, it's really cool, you know, to see how God brings everything full circle. And now um, I get to work with these organizations that blessed me while I was healing from my foster care experience. So I, I grew up with a single mom. She was diagnosed with mental mental illness, struggles, bipolar, and schizophrenia. And um, I first went into the system when I was four. And I was just there for a very short time. My mom worked her case plan and I was reunified. Um, so the system did its job. Uh, that's what the foster care system is meant to do, reunify families. And so I went back with my mom and then um, I lived with her. Um, really until I was an adolescent, my mom, she worked a lot. So she wasn't home very often. And I think that her work was like her outlet um, to kind of like, the, it was like a, where the, the mental illness could manifest. And um, it was a really healthy outlet for her. She was a saleswoman and she was really, really good at it. And then she got in a car accident and that, that, um, made it so that she was home all of the time and the abuse and the neglect just skyrocketed. And that is what led me to enter the foster care system for a second time. And um, at that point, it was very clear that reunification wasn't um, possible. There was a huge part of me that I did not want to go back with my mom um, because of the abuse and the neglect that had taken place. And, um, And then like, she just wasn't 
I think, capable. It's not that she didn't want to work her case plan. I think she just wasn't capable of doing so. Um, And so I lived in about 12 different foster homes until I emancipated the day I turned 18. And I chose to emancipate. Um, I didn't get kicked out. You know, there's that idea that youth turn 18 and they get kicked out of care. And that's like totally a myth at this point because pretty much all states have extended foster care where youth can stay in the system until they're 21, 24, some in some states they're like 26. Yeah. And um, at, at that point, I am pretty sure my state had it until I was 21, but I chose to emancipate because I just felt so burned um, from the system, very hurt. Yeah. And so I just chose to, to step away. Okay. So there, I mean, I have so many questions based on even just that first part of the story, but I, I think <laughs> when you talk about going in as an adolescent and then being in 12 different homes until you emancipated, what, what kind of time frame is that for people who don't know your story? Um, you mean like the, the time that I entered to the time that I emancipated? Yeah. So I, I entered, I think I was like, I was in my late 12. So like going about to be 13. And that was such a weird, like memory is such an interesting thing to me because like the way I memorize it, my mom, you know, has a different memory of it. Um, and everyone just kind of has a different perspective, but I, so when I was like very close to 13, I first entered the system because a teacher saw scratches on my neck. Um, and I told her that they were from my dog and she was like, those are a little bit bigger than a dog. And so, um, I, I entered the system, but I went to go live with my cousins and that like didn't work out. They were not stable. We didn't have like, it just wasn't a good relationship. And so I actually, I should have like went into the system, like I, but I went back with my mom and, um, it was so, it's so interesting because the way I remember it, my mom just came and picked me up. And I always thought that like the court had made a decision that like that wasn't allowed to happen. I don't know how it happened. Um, wow. but then I think I lived with my mom some months, you know, back again when I was 13 and we ended up getting in a fight and she actually ended up calling the police on me. I went to a juvenile detention center for 18 days and then we went to court and at court I had a guardian ad litem, which for people who don't know what that is, that's like a lawyer basically for kids. It's someone who advocates for what's in the best interest of the kids. They're like solely on the kid's side. They're not supposed to have any conflict of interest like that caseworkers can have. And so I had a GAL and it was my first time being introduced to her. And she wanted to take me into like this court closet to talk to me one-on-one. And my mom just like, she did not want anyone to talk to me by myself. And so she kind of had like this manic kind of like one of her manic episodes and that that's when the judge it was in in the courthouse and so the judge saw he was like okay you know there's kind of more to the story than a mom calling the police on her unruly daughter um there's some instability here and that's when he made the decision that it was best for me to go into the system and so I just spent time in the system I think my average average homestay was like six months I had one that was up to 10, 10 months. And then, you know, I had some that were like a couple weeks. So the average was like six months. Um, and then I just emancipated the day I turned 18. So it's about five, you know, five over the course of five years. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're saying that relatively casually as part of your story, because you've told us so many times now, but like 12 different placements in five years is a lot, Tori. Like that's a lot. Right. So, as you're beginning to navigate through those, like what are your memories of those, of those early placements? And like, do you remember um, what, did you have things that were, that were yours to hold on to that um, you get? I mean, I've heard you talk about, you know, be, going through being an atheist and, and talking to people about, um, about your atheism as you're going through placements, but then also still on your, on your own, like searching for God, trying to find answers. What, what were some of the things that you held on to that were, did you have pieces of consistency through those placements that, that gave you any, um, internal stability? What was that like? Yeah. You know, I am so grateful to God, um, because even when I was like, so against him renouncing his name amongst, you know, other young people who are trying to search for God. 
he always planted the seed of faith and hope in me. And, you know, I give some credit to my mom too, because she named me Victoria Hope. And she always told me growing up that that meant victory and hope. Like that's what your name means. That's what your life is going to entail. She spoke that over me. And so from a very young age, I kind of had this idea of like what victory meant for my life, what hope meant for my life. And, um, just this, this, you know, thing, this thing planted in me of faith. Like I didn't accept Jesus into my life, but For some reason, I went to church at my group home, you know, probably just to get out of the group home. But when you hear those messages, no matter how much you want to be, you know, against the Lord, like when you hear these messages of forgiveness and hope and truth, they're just bomb. Like they're bomb to the broken heart. Yeah. And as much as I didn't, I felt like I didn't want to know, he just continued to heal me and be with me. So I think that was something that was consistent. And then another can, you know, consistent person in my life, her name was Tanya. So funny. I'm actually at her house right now because my house is too loud with my babies, but she's not, she's actually not here here by myself, but, um, her, her name is Tanya. And when I was living with my mom, she was kind of like just a safe person. She would Mm. come get me when things were not going good at my house. And she, there was a group of us girls who she would pick up and drop off for church. And I would always tell her, okay, I want to be the first person you pick up and the last person you drop off because I wanted to be with her for as long as possible and away from home as long as possible. And even when it was like off of her route, she did it. And she was just such like a example. She was an example of God and of love. Mm -hmm. And even when I was in the system, I think I just kind of always held on to like this idea that I wanted to be like her as just like as a person who takes care of people. And I always saw her as like a good mom in contrast, but not that my mom's not a good mom. They're just, they just mother differently And I remember watching Tanya as a mom and being like, okay, I want to be like that. Like, that's the kind of mom I want to be. And so it was, even though she wasn't always like able to be there when I was in the system, she was like this person in my heart and in my mind that I was always like, I want to be like that. How'd y'all meet? Um, So she was, this is a really funny story, actually. So I have no idea why there was a date club for junior high kids. No idea. But in the town that I now live in, there's this, in the town that I grew up in too, there was this little dance club for like junior high kids. And you went there. It was like, I mean, there were like adult chaperones and stuff, but like, I would not let like now having kids, no way I would let my kids go there. Like it was ratchet. A hundred percent. So I started to date this boy. Yeah. I started to date this boy there and his mom was like, okay, you can date my son if I can pick you up and take you to church on Wednesdays. And I was like, okay, whatever. What a way to evangelize. Right. I was just like, okay, whatever. So she picked me up, take me to church on Wednesdays. And then one of the chaperones for the youth group was Tanya. And she um, started a small group and that was the group that she would pick all these girls up and take us to church. So okay. then when my, me and my, you know, 12-year-old boyfriend broke up, I still got to go to church with Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I have a whole different set of questions about this club and a mom who is like dangling her son as bait for church evangelism. <laughs> um, so when you, when you met Tanya, like were, you know, were y'all's interactions like, was she just somebody you instantly gravitated toward or did she kind of like build a relationship with you over time? How how did that relationship get started? Well, you know, I think she just is someone that people, kids who come from hard places just gravitate towards because she is incredibly like gentle and chill and soft. Like she was the opposite of my mom. And I want to make very clear, like, my mom is very tenacious. She is very like determined. She is very strong. 
And because I have both of these moms, like I get to be both of those things because they've taught me both of those things. But, um, I think I needed at the time, I really needed this like softness and this gentleness. And so I think that there are just a lot of kids that kind of gravitated towards her, but at the same time, the relationship was built over time. Like she did so much for me over time from when I was in junior high and I first went into the system to, you know, now. And, and yeah, I, when I emancipated out of care, I actually came and lived with Tanya and she, you know, through my graduation party and she just continued to take, you know, good care of me. Mm. So, yeah. Okay. And so how did Tanya track with you as you're being, as you're bouncing from placement to placement, like, did y'all have a way that you would, like, did you just have her number and you would just reach out to her once you got to a new placement? Is that how that would work? So this is a really interesting thing. So I went to my group home and, you know, like when you're a kid, you don't see your file. Like you don't know what your file says. But one time I was in the office, which like I wasn't supposed to be in, but they asked me to like come in and sit there and talk to them while they were doing some work, like the staff at the group home. And my file was out on the table. And I just don't think like the staff noticed, but there was, you know, it had all this writing and then in red, all capital writing, it said no contact Tanya Brasino. And my, that's her last name, which I know she wouldn't care that that's out there in case you put it out there. Sure. But, um, I know now, you know, I, I read that, I looked at, at it there and I was like, Oh no, like, she must not like me. Like I must've done something wrong. And then as I got older, I found out that, you know, that was my mom's request. One of the interesting things about me being in the system was that I was never in permanent custody of the state. Parental rights were never terminated. Um, Wow. Again, based off pretty much my mom's request. And so my mom still had a lot of say in my case, even though it was known that I could never go back to her. Um, and that, this is a very unique case plan. It's called a PPLA. It's like only in Ohio. And it's really wow. not, uh, looking back on it, I see that it just really has no benefit for the youth and care. And so I didn't talk to Tanya for a long time. And there was this idea in my head, you know, that I did something wrong and I don't know when or how the message got across, but at one point Tanya reached out to me um, and I didn't have social media when I was in care. I wasn't allowed to again, like because of my mom's request, but at some point she got a hold of me and she said, you know, she might've sent a message through a kid, like another kid that was in care or something, but she said, just that like she was thinking of me, she loved me and she wished she could talk to me. And I was like, well, if you wished you could talk to me, then like, why don't you? That, and then that was kind of the thought process going through my head. And then I, um, I didn't have visits with my mom for a long time. I wasn't allowed to just because they weren't safe. And then as I started to have visits and calls with my mom again, it became very clear to me that she was very jealous, understandably jealous. Like if my children yeah. had like a second mom, I would not feel very good about that. I'd be like, why am I not adequate as your mom? Um, so over time I could tell that it was my mom's request. And then that was verified. Like as I was a teenager, as I was an adult and I just became able to have more contact with Tanya Um, and then another interesting thing when I was with certain foster parents, they were jealous of her too, because I was just so close with her. She was just always like my person. And so when I was allowed to have contact with her again, even like my foster parents, I think they were like, well, I want to be like, I want to be your parent. I want to be your person. But I mean, Tanya, she's always like, I, people are like, who's your mom and your dad. And I say, you know, my track coach is my dad. And then my that girl, that woman who was like my youth leader, she's like my mother figure. And of course she's like, my mom is always my mom. So she's like my second mom. But um, I think that was really hard, really hard for foster parents. Well, understandably so. But I think that's what, what is so complicated about the system is that you don't get to choose where your, where your 
foster kids are relationally when they come into your care, right? And so there's this balancing act of wanting to be able to build a relationship and then honoring the relationships that are already in place, um, which I want to circle back to that in a few minutes because I have some more questions about that. Um, how did you get introduced to track? Uh, so I was always like pretty athletic. I first started off in cheerleading Mm -hmm. But then, you know, as you move homes, you move schools and cheerleading tryouts, I didn't make it uh, through one of the moves. So I couldn't do cheerleading. Um, and then my second sport was track. At that point, it was it's just interesting to look at how God does everything because I was definitely taking cheerleading more seriously. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely what I wanted to do like long term. I thought it was kind of like what the popular cool girls did. And I was an outcast. So I was like, I want to just being a youth in care. So I was like, I want to keep being a cheerleader to be accepted. Right. And then I didn't make it to cheerleading tryouts. So I, my only sport that remained was track and I just became, you know, better and better at it. I moved schools for the last time. One of the things that my caseworkers did very well, and I will always be so grateful is that they kept me in the same school my last three years of high school throughout all the moves, which is very unique and very hard to do. And so I moved schools one last time and I met my track coach. Um, his name is Scott and you know, I think I, I know now he tells me that everyone was kind of in his ear, like, stay away from that girl. She's trouble. She moves homes all the time. Like, don't know why, but you know, you don't want to, you don't want to get, she's good at track, but you just kind of want to stay away from her. Mm. And, um, he said he saw, he saw me and he saw a girl that was just in need of some hope. And so I think he, from the very beginning, you know, he chose to see me differently than everyone else. Yeah. And how we see children, children are so malleable. So how we see children is going to be how they see themselves. Words have power. Our thoughts have power because they impact our words. Like we have to be very careful with how we're viewing the children around us, no matter what they've been through. Yeah. And so he just was kind of like my father figure and my mentor for three years. He was really the only consistent adult, him and Tanya, um, throughout all the moves. And then my junior year, in between my junior and senior year, he, we were out, out on the track, just the two of us. And he said, I think that you could go on to state and you could win the state track meet. And seriously, no one had ever said things like that to me before. Right. Like, of course my mom, you know, she named me what she named me, but people have never like given me something so tangible like everyone was just kind of just like, don't be a statistic. Like that was the standard. I didn't have any like big things to like accomplish. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, wow, that would be, you know, that would be cool. And then he added this kind of caveat and he was like, if you do everything that I say, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do every, that sounds great. Cause I'm going to do everything he says. And then if it doesn't work out, I'm just going to blame him. <laughs> and so I started just training. Yeah. It was like, it was, I started training and just doing like everything that he told me to do. And through that, we became really close. Like he became my best friend because again, in the system, so I emancipated from the system in 2014. That's the same year that the Normalcy Act passed. And the Normalcy Act says that youth who live in out of home care can have the kind of same kind of privileges and a lifestyle as other youth who do not live in out of home care. And so I, I was very isolated in the system because I, that, that act had not passed. I went, I like went to school, went to track practice, came home. I wasn't allowed to like go to bonfires, go to like friend's house. If I wanted to go to friend's house, their parents had to have a background check, fingerprints, proof of license and insurance. Like it was just all kinds of crazy. And parents didn't want to do that. Like they're like, that's just weird. So, um, Scott was kind of like the only person that I could just go to and it'd be like, not weird. It'd just be like normal. So he became my best friend. And that following year, my senior year, I was undefeated in track and field. Um, and I got to the state meet and, you know, I just, I was just grateful to be there. I'd never been to the state meet individually before in an individual race. And so I was just like, yeah, like just grateful whatever happened, happened. And I wanted to, of course, win state because I wanted to make Scott proud. Um, 
And then I got to, you know, my first race, I got, was on the start line and I had the worst block start that I'd had all year. I was like fourth or fifth out of the blocks. And I remember something that Scott taught me. He told me like, you know, when everything, when everything is falling apart in a race, the biggest thing is you just have to keep form. And so in my head, I just like heard Scott's voice and I just said, keep form, keep form. And I was like in fourth or fifth place. And, um, by the end, you know, I, I won, I won my first state title in the 100 meter dash. And then I went on to run three more races and two of those, um, included three other young women. So, through two out of my four state championships, you know, have to, wouldn't be possible without three other very strong, dedicated young women. Um, so I became a four-time state champion that year and I was the 50th girl in Ohio to ever in history to ever win, um, four state titles in one meet. That's unbelievable. All right. So what, what do you, when you think about that, like, Part, part of the reason that um, I'll say just like in our family in particular, we love uh, for our kids who do gravitate towards sports and we'd love for them to be able to take part in it because of all the things that, that stick with you long beyond um, whether you finish first or 101st in the state. Like, um, are there things that you see? And obviously there's a, there's a bigger significance for you in that moment because you talk about having been an outcast and having been somebody who was just trying to fit in. And then all of a sudden you're not just fitting in, but you're standing out at the highest level. Are there things you learned in that meet and that experience that are still with you today? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, I think humility is a really important thing to me. I, you know, I think when you're on the track and you're winning over and over and over again, and at the same time, like trying to communicate what God has done in your life. So I was very outspoken about my faith. I wore a shirt to every track meet that said for God. Um, and then before all my races, I would gather all the girls and I would pray among us. And so my heart was really to communicate what God had done in my life and to uh, spread that love to others through the gift that God had given me of But then if I was like to go and be like prideful and mean because I won and because I could stand on top of the podium, um, that message is not communicated. And so that has been something that that kind of consistency in my faith and my character has always been very important to me. I think that God really planted that seed in track and he showed me the effects that my pride could have if I was to be mean or to be prideful while also accomplishing things that really were only able to be accomplished because of him and his grace and love. And then, um, of course my, again, going back to Tanya, I remember one time we were at her house and we were doing, we were like doing a craft and I was like, this is a small group. So aren't we supposed to like be reading the Bible? Why aren't we reading the Bible? And she was like, well, sometimes you don't just have to tell people about Jesus or teach them about Jesus. You just have to show people Jesus. And I think that because I was at, like, I, I was like given a platform through track. I was, um, for the first time I was in news articles and I was on TV stations because people were like, how did this girl overcome? Right. They're like never even been to the state track meet and then now just wins four state titles. I, I became known and, um, I wanted, I always talked about God, but it was really important to me that when I wasn't like just talking about him and like on TV or in a newspaper that when I was just with one person or when no one was looking that I was the same person. That's awesome. So you graduate from high school and what's next for you? You go to run track in college. Is that right? Yes. So I went to Ursuline College. That's where I went my first year because I came out of nowhere. There wasn't a lot of scholarship money for me. And so this kind of like little college division two came up to me, offered me a full ride. I liked the coach. Coaches were obviously like the coach's first impression. What I, how I met the coach, it was important to me. I wanted to have a good coach. And um, it turned out that that coach ended up getting fired after my first year because of, 
I don't, I still like till this day, till this day, don't know what happened, but there was a whole investigation that happened. Like they brought us in and asked us questions. I still have no idea what happened, but it was a big deal. And because he was fired, I was released as an NCAA athlete. Mm -hmm. And again, this is just like how I see God's hand over my life. He's so good to me that first year of college. So I'd come to the Lord in, you know, a year before I went to college when I was 17, dedicated my life to him, but just hadn't, I wasn't really being discipled because I went to college and I was living in a way that wasn't reflective of Jesus. And I feel like I didn't know how to stop doing it. And I didn't have all of the people around me, like all the adults to keep me accountable. And so I prayed, I actually prayed. Like, I was like, I don't want to be in college. I was like, take me somewhere else, Lord. But I couldn't because I was, I had signed an NLI with this college. And then I was released and I looked up, I Googled most religious colleges in America. And the number two was Hillsdale College. And so I reached out to the track coach and I said, I really wouldn't go here, but you have to offer me a full ride. I said, these are my times. Um, I can't pay for college. I don't yeah. have the money, but I, I really want to go here. And um, he reached back out to me and he just said, done. Like, he's <laughs> like, it's, it's done. And so I transferred colleges to Hillsdale College and um, I majored in Christian studies. I minored in psychology and that's where I graduated from. And then I got married a week after college graduation. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. All right. So take us through that, that, that journey for you. You, uh, you now start a family right after college, right? Like, so you get married and you are now, uh, you're now a married person and you are starting off in the world and you're starting to, to figure out what about yourself. You know, I knew from a very young age, like, I think I was like eighth grade, I was sitting in a classroom and I knew that I wanted to be a mom and I wanted to be a good mom. But there was, when I was starting my own family, there was so much fear um, around being a mom. Like I just, and still there is still, like, I just never know if I'm doing it right. And like, you can read all the parenting books, but you're like, okay, I'm doing the thing that the parenting book says, but like, how do you really know if this is going to work? Yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah. And you know, my, my birth mom is still in my life and I love her so much, but like yesterday I was talking to her and she was like, you know, your kids are going to get taken away from you and you're going to see how it feels. And even though like, mm-hmm. I know that's her, like that's her talking with her own hurt is still scary because of those statistics of the system. And, you know, I think it's like, I don't know what percentage it is, but it's a pretty high percentage of youth who grow up in care, their children end up in care. And so it's like the only statistic that I have yet to overcome. And it is, it is frightening. Like it just, it feels similar to when I was in the system and you just feel like you're destined for these statistics. And it's like, wow, okay. I wasn't destined for those statistics. So I don't have to be destined for this one. And it's just reminding myself that, you know, statistics, stereotypes, like they aren't the dictator of my destiny. God is like, God is the dictator of my destiny and just holding on to his promises and that truth continually. But it is like, it is really hard. It's, it's always like, there's always this tension and I don't have it figured out yet. Well, when you do figure it out, you can write a book and never have to work again because, you know, none of us have figured it out. <laughs> all of us are, uh, all of us in the same boat of, of just wondering, like, all right, I think we're doing this right. I don't know. I mean, I had a conversation last night with one of our kids and I was like, hey, it's my first time parenting a 12-year-old and it's your first time being 12. And we're just trying to figure this thing out together. And so I'm going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. But if we keep repairing those and and moving forward, that's all we can do, right? Um, And so I think one thing that I'm curious about, I've heard you talk about the Enneagram a lot. You've talked about therapy and counseling a lot um, before. For, For you, as you are starting into this journey of like, 
being a wife, being a mom, having your own family, like trying to overcome obstacles. What were some of the things for you that were first steps in just trying to heal as an adult and, and get to know yourself as you're beginning to parent and be in a relationship? Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've looked at my mom so much. I talk about her so much because she hurt the way that she's parented me, who she is will always have a great impact on me. And there are so many parts that I've decided, okay, that that's not who I want to be. Um, I don't want to parent my kids that way. And I think my mom would actually say the same, but she lacks awareness. And so awareness is very, very, very important to me. I try to be very self-aware. And I think some people, like you might look at that as like maybe self-absorbed, but the the intent of me being self-aware is so that I'm not hurting other people. Because I think yeah. we can so often like just be living our lives and not be aware of the way that we're hurting the people around us um, unless someone tells us. And then maybe someone will tell us and we'll like be in denial of it. And um, so I think awareness has just been very important to me, which is why I think I'll always be in therapy because I want someone to call out my stuff and I'll always be in community, um, a tight knit community, because when you have people who you're surrounded by, who see you up close parenting your children, being a wife, um, being a good neighbor or a bad neighbor, they're going to call you out about it. And then that's why I also love personality assessments. I think they're, first off, they're fun. Like, I think they're fun to do, especially when you do them, like with a group of people and like, they're like, this is what I am. This is what I'm like. I see that. Like, I see that in you. And it's almost like celebrating who you are and who these people are around you. But I would say that the Enneagram is definitely my favorite. One of the things that, um, I think people call her the godmother of the Enneagram, Susan Stabiles. I hope I pronounced that right. I've been on her podcast, so I really hope I pronounced that right. <laughs> um, but one of the things, one of the things she writes is the Enneagram does not put you in a hole or it doesn't pigeonhole you. It takes you out of the hole you're already in. And I think that is such um, a good way of putting just pretty much all personality assessments or therapy or being in community. Like when we are a part of something, when we are um, learning about ourselves, we don't have to pigeonhole ourselves. We don't have to say this is all we are, but we do, we can recognize this is a part of who I am. Um, these are my strengths and weaknesses and I can either build on those or I can help eliminate some of those weaknesses. Um, but when we're not aware of them, they do. They put us in a hole. Awareness is so important. I could talk about it all day. I love that. And I think the um, the you know, benefit of the Enneagram too, especially being in a relationship and you know, co-parenting with, with somebody that you know their personality type, your personality type, it just helps you to be able to see the natural uh, gifts and the natural things to work on within those, um, those relationship dynamics, right? Um, as you're thinking about parenting, I mean, you've, you've, got, um, you've got a full house right now, right, um, of kids that you're parenting, and um, you are writing a book, and you are working on um, you know, being a, a writer, speaking all over the place. Um, you got a lot going on these days, right? How are you um, making time to continue fueling yourself in the midst of so much stuff going on? Oh, well, I'd say, you know, what I have learned as a speaker and a writer, as someone who puts things out there, is that to be a good speaker, to be a good communicator, you have to be a good listener. Mm. Um, and that's listening to people. And that's also listening to the Lord. And so, um, I mean, just being in scripture, being in the word, that's something that I try and never put on the back burner. Because if I do, I know it's going to compromise all of the things that I do publicly. If I compromise the thing, the one thing that I need to do privately it's going to compromise my parenthood. It's going to compromise my wifehood and the vocation that God has gifted me with. Um, and I just, I think it's almost like how I view track. Like I don't want to waste the gift that God has given me. And I know that if I'm not in the word, I'm not, 
you know, I'm not going to be fully, I'm not going to reach the potential in all the things that God has given me um, to, to what I could be if I was consistently in the word. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. As we start to kind of wrap up here, a couple of things I wanted to get your thoughts on um, for, uh, we talked before we recorded about just kind of the foster care system in general um, is not for the faint of heart for people who are wanting to get involved, right? Like it is not something that you just sort of bebop into and just start doing your thing and everything's easy. And it's just this beautiful, fun volunteer opportunity that you have. Um, for people who are are feeling the pull to be involved in the foster care system in some way, shape, or form from the outside, and they're not sure um, where to start, what would be your advice for how to kind of figure out a place to engage within the system? Yeah, you know, there are so many ways people can get involved in the system. I always said the marketing is done wrong. Like all the marketing is like, climb to the high dive, jump in the deep end and become a foster parent. And it's like, okay, like there has to be another way. And there is, um, you know, there's respite. I love respite because it's like you get to be the cool grandparent for a weekend. Um, And I think that gives a lot of people the opportunity to kind of dip their toes in the shallow end into the baby pool and be like, can I do this? Like, is this something that you know, God is really calling me to, it gives you time to discern, uh, what God is speaking to you as you venture into the world of foster care. And then there's, you know, things like safe families where it's not attached to the foster care system. It's a nonprofit. And what they do is they prevent, they try and do preventative work. So, so families don't even have to get involved in the government system. And then there's, like I said, being a GAL or a CASA, GALs, that's not a volunteer position, but there's uh, a position similar to a GAL called CASA and it's a volunteer position. And you get to go to court and you get to advocate for children. I think people who are really into social justice and aren't scared of like stepping into a courtroom, it's a great fit for them. And you know, we've talked about Tanya so much today. If you look at what Tanya did, like Tanya just in, in my coach, like both of them, they weren't foster parents. They used what they had showed up where they were called to show up and just loved, like just love the people around them. And you never know, like if that kid to your left, that kid to your right is in the system or what they're experiencing at home. So just like love the people around you. That's so good. I love that advice. Um, for, for people who are in the system. They are, they are working as foster parents. They are um, kind of in the daily grind of that. And they are, uh, and we're not talking about people who are gaming the system or abusing kids. We're talking about those who are, who are in it and they are trying their absolute best. What would you want them to know from, um, from somebody who was a, a foster youth and in so many different placements? You know, you represent what I think a lot of times there's a, irrational fear of as a foster parent, right? Like getting the kid who might upset the balance in the house or getting the kid who's, who's had too many placements and I don't know how to handle them or whatever. What are some things that you would want them to know um, or, or, you know, like advice or a hope that you would give them as they're kind of in that grind of foster parenting? I think I'll end with the same thing that I kind of started off with. How we see children is how they see themselves. And so be careful about your thoughts. Be careful about your words. Words have power. Um, That is truth and scripture. Words are life and death. And so uh, be careful about the words that you're speaking over your children and also the words that you are speaking when you think your children are not listening. Remember that youth who have experienced trauma are hyper vigilant. Like they know what is happening around them. And when you think they aren't listening or when you think you're in a room by yourself, like, and they can't hear you, um, think about the words that you you are you're saying um, in regards to their identity mm-hmm. because healing healing really begins and ends with identity we have to know who we are who we belong to that god has called us to something bigger than ourselves and if you're speaking something contrary to that as the authority and the adult in their life um, i really think that 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 is just something that can really ruin ruin the identity of of children yeah. in care. Man, okay. Last, Tori, let me ask you this. 
for um, foster youth. And not that we have a huge listenership amongst foster youth um, who are listening for parenting advice as they're in foster care, but um, for those that might hear it or might um, at some point have this shared with them, um, what are what are two things that you would want them to know um, about themselves and um, and where they are? Yeah, I think above you know above everything. Um, I want them to know that there really is a purpose and a plan for their life, that their, their suffering is not in vain, that it is not wasted. And that doesn't mean that that's what God wanted you to go through. It just means that like we live in a fallen world. That's why you have been through the suffering you've been through. It's not because God has you. It's because we're all human and we live in a fallen world. But because God is so, so good to us and because he loves you, like because above everything else, he loves you. He can use that suffering for his glory and for your good. That's awesome. All right. Last, last thing now before we go. Um, Tell people about the book um, and uh, where all they can get it. And, um, and then let's talk briefly about your other initiatives that you have going on with, um, oh, I, hope, I should have asked you about saying this beforehand, but is it F the file? Like that's the, that's the Instagram file. Is that the name of the organization? That's what it's called. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's not an organization. It's a project. But yeah. We can talk about it. We can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes, please go. Please go order Fostered. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you want to purchase your books. Um, I named it Fostered because I wanted, I wanted, um, or both. Yeah. (laughs) I named it Fostered because I wanted youth and care and foster parents to be able to just like walk through the aisles of a store and be like, oh, like that's probably about foster care. Like that book is probably for me. And um, then I learned that not every book ever written gets placed in stores. <laughs> it has to um, it has to meet a number. So I don't know what that number is. I think it's actually a mystery to everybody. But um, it's really important that you pre-order pre-order authors' books. So please go pre-order my book, um, Fostered, and hopefully that can get in the hands of the community that needs it, those kids who are coming from hard places and those people around them who are trying to learn how to love them. Um, And yeah, F the File is a project that I started. It's really to rename um, and re-identify youth in foster care. You know, we all have these files when we're in the system and they follow us and we have no idea. We either have no idea what they say, or we hear these, we see and hear these kind of little things that Mm -hmm. make us not feel good about ourselves. And I have encouraged and equipped foster parents, group home staff, caseworkers to rewrite their kids' files. You don't ever have to see your kid's file to even know what it says, but you rewrite it in just the way that you see them, all their best characteristics, their talents, who they truly are. And you just give it to them in a file folder because um, there's an author, he wrote The the Body Keeps the Score. I'm sure so many people who are listening to this have already read that book. But one of the things that he says is when it comes to healing, therapy is great. Psychiatric medication is great. He says the most efficient way to heal trauma in our bodies is to have lived experiences that directly contradict the traumatic experience. And having the things, these negative things spoken over you through a file is traumatic. And so I wanted to create an experience where children like literally, you know, experience the opposite. I love that. I love that. Um, Lastly, Tori, the beloved initiative the Beloved Initiative is a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, I started it to give voice to youth in foster care and then uh, realized that, that we were touching the lives of, you know, birth parents, uh, people who were impoverished, and we were doing a lot of preventative work. And uh, then the idea just came to me that what if we just became professional lovers of people? 
You know, what if we just took care of people, just like the people who have taken care of me the way they have, you know, they have loved me with what they had right where they were. What if we equipped and empowered people to do just that? I love that. Well, you can find uh, the Instagram links to F the File, the Beloved Initiative, um, all of Tori's stuff, her website, uh, where to pre-order the book, all of that at Tori Hope Peterson on Instagram. Um, and we'll have all of that linked in our show notes as well. Um, but Tori, thank you so much for joining us today and just sharing your story and being really generous with your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the work of Empowered to Connect. You guys are so incredible, and it's an honor to be here. Well, I mean, listen, you can't say anything other than I, I told you that was going to be um, a great episode and, and somebody that you would love listening to. Um, Tori is just a joy to be around, a, a leader in this um, in this space, and just a voice that is uh, honestly piercing through the wilderness right now uh, when it comes to um, voices of those who have been in foster care and um, their advocacy for it and just some incredible stuff. So we're going to have a lot of stuff linked in the show notes that she talked about, um, the different initiatives that she's involved in. You should definitely follow her on social media. Um, and uh, you should definitely, definitely go pre-order her book. If you would like to get a copy of the book for free, um, ordered by us, by Empowered to Connect, what we will do is we're gonna pre-order the book for five people um, who post a screenshot of them listening to the podcast. They're gonna tag Tori. You're gonna tag Empowered to Connect, uh, and then we will find you in those mentions and we will DM you if you are one of the five people selected. So again, post a screenshot of you listening to the episode. You can give some thoughts if you want, or a great episode, something like that. Make sure you tag at Tori Hope Peterson and make sure you tag uh, at Empowered to Connect as well. And so uh, if you're confused on those handles, you can find them in the show notes below. You can also search on Instagram for us, but uh, Instagram or Facebook, if you will find, uh, find us, tag us, show a screenshot of you listening to the podcast. Uh, we will take five of you at random and we will pre-order her book for you, um, which comes out again on August 30th. If you are not one of those five, you should 100% still go order this book, pre-order it for somebody you know who might be um, in the world of foster care at some uh, point or place within it. And so um, it is just, it is great. And she is awesome. So a uh, big thank you to Tori for coming on again today. And um, that's all we got. So uh, without uh, anything else, I will say um, for Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers all of our audio, for Tad Jewett, the creator of the music behind the Empowered to Connect podcast, I'm J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast.